Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Juvorik. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. Sports performance consultant James Smith from Global Sports Concepts is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. In this episode, James and I discuss the after-action review concept covered in his book, The Governing Dynamics of Coaching, and how this can be applied within a high-performance organization within sports. 
As always, this was another excellent episode with James, and I hope you guys really enjoyed. All right, James, we are recording my man, so uh, great to have you on for our monthly uh, discussion. So um, we'll keep this brief because you're on a time limit. You have uh, about 50 minutes, and I suppose I'm kind of on a time limit too because I'm not sure what my Wi-Fi is going to hold up here because just for the listeners, I am on, or I am in uh, St. Mary's in London on my master's. Um, and I also do a bit of study for some exam calls on Saturday. But anyway, we'll get into uh, this topic um, from your book, page 54, from the Government Dynamics of Coaching, a Unified Theory, Field Theory of Sports Preparation, lovely title. Uh, you speak about this concept um, in the culture section called the After Action Review, which I found very interesting. So take it away, sir. It exists in a host of international military contexts and like any subject matter domain it, it's a question of the method of execution and so the way that i speak about it in the book is reflective of a particular special operations military unit that i've done the most consulting with on a man-per-man basis resultant of personal friends that i have in this unit and the basis of it is to serve as a communication vehicle that opens up the platform for criticism. Mm. And this is why it is listed in the cultural section of the book, because as I explain, culture is one of the most misunderstood subject matter domains in sport and elsewhere because it's so often reduced to ethics, which is to say, if we were to go around and interview any variety of, whether it's military, conventional forces, special operations forces, corporate employees, sport athletes, and ask them, what is the culture of your organization? The overwhelming response that you'll receive is going to be some ethic or value, something that you associate with being on a t-shirt or framed in a picture in the, in the locker room or the hallway or the meeting room. Mm. This, is, this is what culture gets reduced to when in reality, it is, it's the set of ideas that influences absolutely all thought and behavior. And depending upon the specific context in which you look, you know, from an evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology perspective, what you get in terms of what is culture, asking one of these specialists, the answer that you'll receive has to do with information stored that goes back at least seven generations at the level of the DNA that has profound implication on behavior in postnatal life thereafter. Yeah. If you speak to a sociologist, maybe you get some concept re related to the set of ideas that, that I mentioned that influences all thought and behavior. If you look in Oxford Dictionary, you get the arts and other manifestations of the human intellect regarded collectively. So, so no matter which one of these 
definitions or characterizations of culture you receive, when you square that against what most athletes or coaches or corporate personnel or military personnel respond to what, what is their understanding of culture, you see the magnitude of difference that separates the two. And we know from the book and from the work of David Deutsch and Karl Popper and others that no knowledge creation or gain is possible void of criticism and conjecture. Mm-hmm. And this after action review is a vehicle that allows for the criticism of all possible decisions and actions. And from the military context, the in particularly regarding the unit that I have gained this information from in terms of how it works in this unit is that the, the, the purpose for this open platform communication criticism is for the rapid evolution of tactics. And so we have this universal transferability to any sport or corporate context. Often there is bureaucratic red tape that's prohibiting the evolution of tactics in a variety of organizational environments. And what this special operations, special operations reference points towards is the way to subvert all of this. And as you've heard me mention before, typically in the psychological reference, that the, it's the implications that are so much more profound for individuals such as military special operations because the consequences of decisions, particularly on target, often result in life or death or serious injury or not. And there's that much more of an impetus to adopt this framework of thinking for any other type of professional, regardless of how less severe the consequences of the people who populate that profession's decisions are because of the value of the reserve that we generate, which you know, all this should be familiar to anyone who's listened to our discussions. So mm-hmm. the, 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 as is explained in the book, the, the key points to this after action review is that no authority exists in the room. So we have this interesting dynamic in which no matter any type of democratic government society at large that we may use as an example, the irony is that the military is anything but democratic. It's authoritarian. And this is the conventional military structure. And of course, the dynamics do change when you go and distinguish between conventional and special operations. The higher the level you go in special operations, the greater the individual autonomy, the individual responsibility, the more creative thinking is not only required but expected of each individual where something very different exists in conventional forces, in which case the idea of soldiering is much more unidirectional following the orders of superiors and creative thinking is not only not encouraged but looked at as problematic with respect to the logistical functioning of large conventional forces. Sport clearly 
approaches something much closer to special operations with respect to the smaller numbers and then and the necessity to think creatively to operate effectively in a variety of team individual combat sports. But the distinction is that in the military reference frame, leadership is synthesized with operations, which is to say that you have this spectrum of leadership, regardless of whether it's on the enlisted or the commissioned side, that goes from the lowest levels to the highest levels and both in conventional and special operations forces, and of course, there's some subtle differences depending upon which country you reference in the world, you have operational, you have operators that are leadership. And so if we were to make this analogy in sport, <clears throat> excuse me, we, 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 would, we would have much smoother lines or no lines at all that separated athletes from coaches. You would at the higher levels of say athlete leadership actually have athletes who are coaching mm. such that the leadership of, for example, a, 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 a team sport that the leadership on the athlete side at the highest level would be nearly indistinguishable from the beginning of the coaching level. So this would be the closest analogy of, of course, this does not exist in sport. It used to, it used to exist in sport in the earlier days, you know, going back the, you know, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago, where you had the, you, you had the, the position of player coach. You had coaches who were actually playing. And, and this is actually a, a closer approximation of how it works in the special operations reference. And the, the reason that I point that out is because the natural question following this information given that states there is no authority in the room and everyone in the room is everyone who has any operational relevance to the mission objective. So again, if we extrapolate this in the sport context, this is anyone who has any operational relative operational role or impact on the competition. So you have to extend your reference frame to anyone in the organization who has an impact on operations. So depending upon the level of sport we're referring to, let's say it's a professional sports team that has all sorts of support personnel in video, in media, in business, et cetera, you have to ask yourself who is relevant and where are they plotted on the spectrum regarding the sport competition. So think of the vantage point, for example, that the video department has in filming. This is sort of an, an objective reference frame. They're not involved directly with tactics, with, with technique, with cultural establishment, with psychological preparation, with the sensory motor aspect. They have this objective reference frame, however, in simply capturing motion on video and 
For this reason, it is entirely plausible that a cameraman or woman could have relevant criticisms as to the motions they are observing. And so what this means is there is a plausible argument to include all video personnel in the after action review. In addition to, to I just use that as one example, when we, because the myopic thinking, Robbie, would be, oh, okay, after action review, we're doing what the military does. So what this will be, it'll be a meeting between all athletes and all coaches. This would be conventional thinking, mm -hmm. which would be flawed because you have to include everyone who has an impact on the competition result. And so all these different types of support personnel, again, it's context dependent based upon the sport in question. So again, I'm using a professional sport. So we know there's going to be perhaps a psychology department, a biomechanics department, an, an analyst department, a nutrition department, uh, all these balkanized divisions, of course, that I criticize. And all of these individuals have an important effect on the outcome, whether it's readiness of a different sort, mechanical, physiological, biological, psychological, all these components of readiness that are impacted by any one of these specialists who interacts with athletes throughout the week. And so therefore, they must be included in this meeting. So natural questions are, okay, well, how does this work? If there's no, if, if, the, if the head coach and if the manager and if, and if these people higher on the administrative hierarchy are stripped of their title in this meeting, then how does it work? How does it not turn into some unregulated circus in there with you know tempers flaring and the mismanagement and people talking over people? And the answer goes back to the leadership that I referenced because in the special operations context, you have the sweet spot of leadership that sort of splits the difference between operations and administration. And these are the individuals, I don't want to get into to titles, but these are the individuals who regulate these meetings. And the closest approximation you would get in sport would be the most senior leadership on the athlete side of the equation. This is who would run it. And every coach listening can think about who that might be with respect to the type of sport that they're involved with and the, the nature of the way they logistically manage and encourage leadership on the team. So if, if we pick a professional sports team, let's say rugby union, now, now it's a question of are, are, the, are the captains selected for on the basis of leadership qualities apart from technical tactical prowess and and this is a viable question to ask because each team sport might have a different criteria as to who their leadership is given the any differences that might exist i think it's fairly safe to state that that leadership qualities and a responsible set of you know character and values are intrinsic to most 
leaders who are designated either peer reviewed or if that's influenced by the coaching. And I, I don't, I don't, I do not think that it would, that's controversial at all. So, so if we, if we assume that all player leadership captains or otherwise are competent from a character standpoint, then this simply reinforces who we're looking for to manage these meetings. Because what you have is you'll have different, the more the departments are represented in one of these meetings. I just spoke about the, from the athlete level who is, you know, athletes, senior level captains, leadership, otherwise, this is who is leading the athlete side of the criticism. However, depending on however many other departments are represented, we need to have a comparable, I'll sort of use the word, middle management level of representation. So if, it, if the video department is in there and the biomechanics department is in there and the video analysts are in there and the nutritionists are in there and the, the massage therapists are in there, each one of these is going to have a representative that's not the senior authority figure of that department and also not the new person somewhere in the middle who's representing this approximation of, you know, the team captains. Who, who is the version of the team captains in each one of these departments? That's who's representing. And the way this works, Robbie, is anyone can criticize anyone else because there is no authority. And this is to occur immediately after the competition. Mm. And this never happens in sport, as you know. The, the, any version of this, because there are sport teams that are aware of the after-action review and the military reference that integrate. And this is a problem because of historical revision. It's the reason, Robbie, why eyewitness testimony is the least credible and the, e the easiest to criticize and deconstruct on behalf of, say, prosecution in the law reference frame because of human fallibility. James, just one second. We, I lost you there for about 30 seconds. So it was just when you were on this never happens after competition and I just lost you. Just, you just came back there about 20 seconds ago. Right, where did where did we where did you mean, lose? Just 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 start there again. At the, it has to happen. At the competition. Hopefully, the, 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 yeah. The, the, so the reason why this needs to occur immediately after, in the case of sport, the competition, and not the morning after or two days later, is because of the tendency for humans to revise history, historical revision, human fallibility. It's the reason why it is. It's the reason why eyewitness testimony in the court of law is the least credible and the easiest to refute and criticize on behalf of prosecution, for example. By doing the after-action review and all the criticizing immediately after, you capture the reference frames that are the closest approximation to those that existed during the competition, which, according to this example, would be simply, you know, just minutes removed. What, what you do not want to allow for is time to reflect because invariably what occurs simply from a probabilistic standpoint is the revision 
of decision making, the revision of sensory motor perception and all the facets that contribute to decision and action in a tactical reference in the competition, we, we, we do not want to allow for mutations of these processes to occur. So what you want to capture is the, 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 the frame of reference, the perspective as close as possible to the competition itself. And this is why the after action review in sport must ideally occur immediately after the competition. And we've established in previous discussions, and of course I write about it in the book and based upon the work of others, that criticism is the, the sole vehicle, the, the reason-based explanations and you know, challenges of decision-making, say in the tactical reference in sport, that must occur in order to evolve it the fastest. And the reason why this concept of no authority during the meeting and of course, I make the argument in the book for this concept to extend much farther than the meeting itself, but to the organization as a whole, in which case sort of the closest representation of this is the concept of a flat hierarchy. In, in order that this, the potency of advancing cultural dynamics is not restricted only to a meeting. What we because because Robbie, what's important for everyone to understand is the more that an authoritarian or vertical, more of a static leaning culture as opposed to a dynamic. And of course, this is referenced from societal histories. In which case, you know, every single static society in history is the one that does not last very long because of the bulwarks that exist as a part of these authoritarian, tyrannical st structures that inhib inhibit progress. They inhibit progress because criticism is resisted. And in the extreme sense, you're punished for criticizing. And this is what we also associate with the conventional mode in which case the military operates on the basis of an authoritarian hierarchical structure, as do most corporate entities and most sport teams. So in order to foster the most dynamic possible culture, which fosters correspondingly ongoing progress at the most accelerated rate, we want to synthesize into the culture this concept of an after-action review and extend it more broadly beyond simply the confines of this meeting. However, if the first step is to introduce it in the form of a meeting, then it's, it's important that the integrity of how it exists, particularly in special operations, is preserved. And this is why you've got senior leadership of each department, not the top, but this you know, middle management level that's the reference point for each department, and then one by one, anyone who has a criticism of anyone else is given the floor to do so. So this teaches many important human individual character traits. You've heard me speak about self-regulation more than once regarding the management 
of emotion and you can imagine how critical this is in order for one of these after action reviews to not turn into a shouting match or or what's more you know even you know some type of physical confrontation because mm -hmm. invariably due to human fallibility there will be mistakes made during the competition they will be the result of decision making that has gone awry and now it's only moments after the competition and say for example the it we're referencing the losing team and their after action review and now because of the way this open platform without authority exists in the after action review we potentially have the the intern in the video department who's criticizing the head coach and the reason why this exists is because that intern we do not want to diminish what possible knowledge instead of references anyone may have because what a what a terrible assumption this is again you've heard me more than once criticize empiricism and all the rest so you you simply cannot know that the knowledge that some you know 21 year old intern might bring to the meeting you you cannot know there 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 could be an extraordinary perspective that exists within this individual that exists completely independent from their lack of experience in the sport industry or with that sport team in question. So good, everyone good good will hunting. Precisely. A good example. And so the the floor is open and you can imagine now due to the dysfunctional culture that is pandemic in sport due to the authoritarian structure stemming from the head coaches due to what exists in most cases even even if it's not immediately recognizable and maybe more in the unconscious level for most individuals involved in sport there there is a pretty strong resistance to criticism i mean this is this is demonstrated clearly enough at all these post match press conferences in the way that you see coaches and managers with poor self regulatory abilities losing their temper on media with respect to questions that are unfavorable to them so we we see resistance to criticism at all levels all the time so you can imagine now what have you it's 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 Eddie Jones and the England national rugby team and they've lost a test match and here you have a video intern in the after action review saying Eddie i i want to criticize your decision on the line out tactical instruction at the 68th minute for such and such reasons you 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 can imagine offhand what most head coaches responses would be to receiving this type of criticism from this person who the fuck is this fella which would simply be a, a testimony to their own resistance to criticism mm -hmm. and 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 it, clearly this would be implicated in the dysfunctional culture of of the team to begin with and so this opportunity has to exist and again the, the reason it has to exist is to allow for any possible relevant knowledge to be brought to bear that otherwise as you very well know Robbie and as every listener should recognize 
is often prohibited due to the tyrannical constraints that influence organizational culture. A, a typical dynamic for these static institutions is to not recognize the dysfunction that exists within the, dis, the, the organization in question, but only to the organizations who serve as their competitors. It's a similar psychosocial emotional dynamic that is seen with abuse victims in which you have a stereotypical behavior from a, say, a physical abuse victim in a adult relationship who stereotypically makes excuses for and apologizes for the partner who is abusing them, yet might be quick to recognize the dysfunctional nature of a friend of theirs who's involved in a similar abusive relationship. Mm. So, so while they're making excuses for and apologizing for the individual they are involved with, they're very quick to criticize and recognize dysfunction in an adjacent relationship. This is a, this is a cliche. And what must be brought to bear is the self-awareness. So going back to the sport reference now, many individuals hearing what I'm explaining here and can recognize, if only academically, the difference between a dynamic and a static society and what the, the progress is made available, why the progress is made available as a result of this platform of critic for criticism existing to allow for constant progress and you know the, the reason-based rational discussions challenging the logic of decisions all for the purpose of progress and advancing for example tactical execution while this may be recognized academically what we what you have to ask your question is just how feasible is this and so you know i use you know the, the, the video intern criticizing the head coach you know m most people listening to this have to be willing to have the honest conversation with themselves and just how feasible is it for anyone in their organization to criticize particularly leadership in another department? The, the answer most assuredly probably is no one would even really think about doing that because of concern for job security. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the cultural dysfunction that exists because again, culture is something much more than ethics and values that are put into one-liners on t-shirts and posters in the locker room. So anyone can criticize anyone else. There is no authority. And again, the purpose is for the most rapid evolution of, oper of operations. We'll just, we'll just, We'll categorize everything as operations. So whether that's the tactical decision-making during the game or some other operational construct of which there are many during these weeks of preparation that separate each game. Any, anything that's criticizable, any part of the process, whether it occurs during the competition or leading up to it, has to be fair game for criticism 
at the very least during this or some approximation of an after action review. And of course, I'll, I'll reiterate what I explained in the book is how even more effective is to extend this more broadly via a flat hierarchical operational approach to the, to the dynamic of, in this case, the sports organization, such that criticism is not limited to the time constraint of, say, an after-action review. But th that, that's the premise. There is no hierarchy of authority. Everyone who has any operational relevance, again, not only to the game itself, but also the operations leading up to the game, should be present in this meeting and the floor is open for criticism for the purpose of progress. And so it's necessary again to clarify the types of criticism and the most productive in what an after action review should only be essentially limited to is substantive criticism. Mm -hmm. And of course, the same argument could be made for, for criticism of, of any sort in any other domain, whether it's on social media or the, 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 the television media or journalists. Substantive criticism, only criticizing the substance and not the person. So uh, you you actually answered a lot of follow up questions that I was going to have for you in your full um, your full answer there because uh, I was actually going to ask about like you know you speak about this incident immediately after the uh, the the match the game competition the event uh, and on the, the context of the situation just uh, one interesting thing just to add to that is Ray Dalio in his book Principles you know one of the most famous hedge fund managers. Yeah. In the world's uh, owner, bridge founder, and owner Bridgewater, Bridgewater, I think his name is going to be Bridgewater. But he has this thing called uh, an idea, Amera, Amera democracy. I think that's how he says it. Mm -hmm. Essentially, again, sort of similar to your kind of concept there with the uh, after action review, and that when they have these meetings, that like there's no hierarchy, you know, that an intern can literally turn around and say to Ray, I, I taught what you've done in that project, or that um, investment was was incorrect. I didn't think that was the correct decision. So it's interesting to see that at, at a high level in that domain, that something similar does exist. The only thing, um, I you know, just as, as you were like kind of going through this, because again, I've only I'm only on my first read through a book. And the way I do deep studies of books, like I read them and then I go back and I read them. When I read them, I'll start making notes and then I'll like uh, the best way I learn is if I have to teach. So like I'll probably make the government dynamics into some sort of PowerPoint. So I have to teach it like. Um, but I have to go back and re-go through. I probably just as you were like answering these these questions, or sorry, big question on after action review. I was thinking that I probably put a cart before the horse here because a concept and topic we are going to speak on is this idea of moral character, um, which is something you you touch on in in the book. Because the question I'm now going to ask is, okay, this is all great, James, and you get a lot of this, but how? Like, how do we get a whole group or organization? Um, of people to get to a level of awareness where something like an after action review can take place. I mean, there's so many, you know, and you've alluded to this, like people's emotions. So first of all, people again need to be educated 
uh, on an awareness of why they are the way they are and a certain frame of reference they have and biases they have and subconscious beliefs that they have, obviously that's going to need to be sort of taken care of or at least the person within that meeting is aware of, okay, I have my biases, I know why I have I have demons and why I may think certain ways and everyone else does that in the room. Um, then as well, like to be able to, to bring a group of players to be able to do that immediately after uh, a competition can be quite tough as anyone who's been involved in any sports team, you know, obviously harder if you, if you lost, but then uh, even if you won, you'd probably get people going, ah, we don't need to have that. We won, you know, the way, but it'd obviously be harder if it was lost. Um, I just want to, two more things and I'll, I'll let you answer here. Uh, what then, like, what do we do after, like, what do we do after, uh, an after action review? Because like you've probably been a part of, we go to these meetings and they're great and there's great ideas, but there's no follow up then. So what happens with the information that's gleaned or gained from an AAR, uh, after action review, just gets you going, I shorten it down. And, um, there was one other thing. Oh yes. And one final thing. I'm actually surprised I remembered all this without writing it down. It's usually my, my short term memory is broken. Uh, I'm almost getting my brain scanned. I think I might have early Alzheimer's dementia. It's all those uh, drugs you do. Oh man, I do do a lot of drugs. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not taking that out. I'm not editing that out either. Uh, no, but the last one then is so this is all great as well. And let's say we have our meeting, we have you know, we have our action plan, and then we walk outside, and then <gasps> media. What do you think about that decision? What do you think about? And they're putting all those questions back on. So obviously, there'll be some sort of preparation that will be there in place, but I'd like to hear your thought on that. So, basic question I'm going to ask you is, how do we get players to that level of awareness? Is this the idea of moral character that needs to be built? What do we do then with the information that comes from an after-action review? And then media after this meeting that might start to stir up questions or emotions that were brought up again in the meeting. So those, those, those basic three things, if that makes sense. There, therein lies the rub, Robbie, and we invariably have to circle back to the governing dynamics of coaching because... The answer of how ultimately is administrated by the leadership of the organization. And this is why I criticize the operational incompetence of most coaches and organizational leaders because what, what you just offered effectively a proof of, Robbie, is that I, as the organizational leader, must, if my objective is is to foster an environment in which something like the AAR works seamlessly and that the actionable intelligence offered in it can be made manifest immediately after and that anyone who's being interviewed by the press after the meeting is self-regulated with decisive, effective communication. The, the, there's one answer for all of this, and that's that the competency operationally of the leadership must rise. Because how possibly can I be considered to be a competent leader of this organization if I do not have an applied understanding of human behavioral biology? How? Yeah, yeah. How, how can I be competent without an applied understanding of evolutionary psychology? I, I, I defy anyone listening to refute this concept of how can you be competent without it? Because if the answer is, well, you don't have to be is the coach, you can just have another specialist who understands human behavioral biology and another one who understands evolutionary psychology and another one with an applied standing of sociology and another one of epistemology. And 
now we've got 13 other specialists in the building and we're burning the candle at both ends, still not solving the original dysfunction at the root of it all, which is that the leadership must embody the competence that I speak of in the governing dynamics. And it, it is a conversation like this. I mean, you, your questions, as I say, Robbie, they, they sort of offer, offer the proof that, that what I'm answering is the mode of explaining how this works. And so necessarily the leadership must be in a possession of this type of applied knowledge to generate a culture, because this is what we're speaking of, Robbie. How do you generate a culture in which the after action review runs smoothly, that the, the, the knowledge and criticism and so on that is shared within it is immediately actionable thereafter and that any interaction with the media, say, post-competition is as smooth and as efficient as it can be. How, how do you do this? Because the, the, what, what we're talking about with each one of these, the actionable intelligence shared during it, the nature of interacting with the media after it, the way that it works in the first place, all of it is reflective of the culture that underpins. Mm -hmm. It's the foundation of everything. It's not just what your t-shirts this year say and what everybody repeats in their pregame hoorah chanting reflective of the posters on the wall. It's, it's the set of ideas that influences absolutely all thought and behavior. And so this is what must be done as to how leadership can develop this type of competency and knowledge and have actionable modes of developing progress in this regard, it's James at globalsportconcepts.net. This is what I do for a living. <laughs> He's slowly getting more funnier with every episode. So. Uh, no, that's, that is like exactly that. And definitely we, we will discuss a lot more about culture and how to develop culture because, um, I mean, that's a huge aspect of the book. I mean, the, the first 100 pages in the Government Dynamics is basically culture and psychological preparation before you touch on any of, say, Precisely. classical training concepts. And, you know, the usual cultism who like, like, they'd be like, why, why is he spending so much time over all this stuff? He's like, you just don't get it. Look at the hierarchy, people. If exactly. If these aren't in place, the pyramid's going to tip the fuck over. That's right. Um, you have eight minutes. And so we'll actually completely change gears here because I'm going to give you eight minutes to tell me about um, the conference in Spain. I'd like to hear how that went. Indeed. So this was the World Football Academy Pro Course in Valencia that occurred June, what was it, June 4th through the 10th, the 3rd through the 10th. Hmm. And I was, I was fortunate, Raymond Verheyen, who's the director of the World Football Academy, the owner, the CEO, everything, we, Raymond and I developed a rapport a couple years ago and I've had a few collaborations and he wanted to have me over there as an adjunct to his, the way that he operates the education course. And it was, it was really fantastic in the, the mode at which he integrated me and I had opportunities to speak essentially every day whether that was back and forth between the two of us or me having short presentations to all the different delegates. And then of course, all the sidebar opportunities to speak with the delegates. It was an international audience, which was fantastic. It's always the most fulfilling for me to, to interact with coaches from a variety of different countries. 
span there was there was representation there from many different european countries including the uk south america the far east northern africa so there was a there was a great cross section mm. and and I have many, many positive things to say about Raymond's mode of coaching education because he has a really unique combination of both theoretical and applied knowledge as both an educator and a coach. It's actually something that I mentioned to him afterwards in encouraging him to get back into actual coaching because we... So we we were in Valencia, and Raymond had a rapport with the, of course, with football academies all over the world, and in this case, Valencia Football Club, and and the club lent the World Football Academy their U twelve U thirteen team as well as the U seventeen team, so that Raymond could demonstrate in real time his mode of coaching tactics and interventions to all the different delegates who were given opportunities to coach these athletes. And it was really neat because the U 17s in particular were extraordinarily talented Mm. as far as international football groups go. And so that was really a sight to see, even though the, this style of coaching is clearly different with respect to what these players were being taught by the Valencia Academy to see how Raymond intervened made subtle adjustments to to mutate the tactics towards the ones that he espouses as part of the world football academy model was manifest in real time there there was a there was a there was a point where i was standing next to the fence and raymond and i were talking and he would run out and say have an intervention with the left winger and then run back and say james watch this and you know 30 seconds later a goal would be scored as a result of the you know an intervention he made and so <laughs> so this was really um, it was a great trip, and the uh, really a lot of compliments to the open-minded and progressive thinking of the delegates who were who were there, who ver- varied in terms of football coaching, academy levels, spanning to the pro level. There was analysts there, there was fitness people there, and it was it was really good to to see the open-minded demeanor of the delegates who attended. So yeah, it was, it was a very good. And to, to, to the point of our last podcast sort of reinforces the, you know, you know, the criticism I received from Jamie and, and, you know, Dan Abrams, this concept of how can objectivity possibly exist in coaching? The, these individuals should, should attend one of Raymond's courses because they're, because Jamie and Dan are both involved in football and they should attend one of Raymond's courses to get a firsthand explanation because the entire course is centered around objectivity and the absence of subjective personal feelings, inclinations being present in the process of thinking. And they could see how this works both in the, in the facet of dialogue and preparation in addition to the actions that are taken in real time in practice and rehearsal absolutely everything centered around an objective approach. And so this is just a point that's, that's worth noting. Sweet. Sweet. All right. uh, I'll let you go because I know you have a call now in eight minutes and you probably want to get up and do one or two things and get ready for it. So 
short one for us, under an hour for, for first yes. time ever. Uh, but as always, information golden. So, uh, yeah, it's great great chatting to you, great catching up. And sure, I will talk to you next month. And so just stay online while I wrap up. So for all the listeners, another classic episode with James Smith. Be sure, I know it took me a while, but be sure to pick up the book. I mean, the book is fantastic. Just so you know, I, uh, Steve Magnus, who was one of our lecturers this weekend, I showed him the book and he was like, he, he's, he said he's getting it. He said he looked like he's clicking through it. And I was explaining to him like some of your concepts and ideas. I, I love the medical and uh, the medical school and law school analogy. I'm using that all the time. I was like, if you think about it, doctors, they go to, like, you're an oncologist and I'm an immunology. We can still speak the same language because we're unified yes. by our first five years of, of uh, college together. Same if we went to law. And I, I keep using this. I'm a, I'm a quantum physicist. You're an astrophysicist. But what's our common language? And everyone's like, maths? I was like, yes, maths. I'm an engineer. You're an engineer. What's our common language? Maths. And I was like, I'm a strength coach. You're a physio. Let's say we took away those titles. What unifies us? Movement. So it's just all that like. That's right. Yeah. So I, I love the medical school analogy. I'm like, that's the way it should go. For, and it should be sports preparation. Sports yes. preparation coach. Anyway, uh, so for listeners, be sure to check out uh, globalsportsconcepts.net. The book, Global Dynamics of Coaching, a unified field theory of sports preparation available on James' website and on Amazon through Vervante Publishing. Uh, James, thanks a million. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening again and be sure to share this out. So until next time, take care, be well and stay strong. Thank you.